Ah, Paris, the city of light, the glorious capital of France. What is it about this place that draws so many people each year? Maybe it's the various historic and cultural sites and attractions, or perhaps the delicious cuisine that's world-renowned for its quality and flavor. With over two million residents, it's a complex metropolis of native Frenchmen, immigrants from throughout the former French Empire and its territorial possessions, to say nothing of people from all walks of life. But, of course, it wasn't always like this. While it now comprises some 41 square miles, 105 square kilometers, and encompasses both sides of the river that runs straight through it, the Seine, it began as a tiny settlement on the Ile de la Cité, a small speck of land in the middle of the river, as well as the dead center of the current municipality. The way it looks now, it's difficult to imagine that it was ever considered vulnerable or prone to attack. And yet, in AD 845, that's exactly what happened, when some of the most fearsome and feared warriors in European history laid siege to the city with a ferocity unseen since. Why did the Vikings attack Paris? What was it like being a Parisian in this crucial moment in history? And how did the city's defenses hold up against the northern invaders? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and join me as we attempt to answer these questions right here and now on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. With a current population of just over 2 million inhabitants, it's difficult to imagine that Paris was ever anything but a big, bustling metropolis. But as recently as the 19th century, it was still considered a sleepy town by European standards of the time. For much of its history, it was a decidedly rural, almost pastoral place. Accounts from the early 1800s recall several farms still standing within the city limits, with green pastures full of grazing livestock dotting the landscape. The streets were of stone, the foundations of which had been laid during the early medieval period and earlier. Houses were made of wood or stone, and stood more or less as they had for centuries. But the focal point of the city, even then, was the Ile de la Cité, that selfsame island in the middle of the Seine, and it was here where the city was founded way back in the 4th century AD. The earliest human presence in what would one day be known as Paris dates back to the Ice Age, when hunter-gatherer societies arrived in the area following big games such as woolly mammoths and rhinoceroses. The first historical attestations, however, hail from the 3rd century BC, when a Celtic tribe, known as the Parisi, settled on the banks of the Seine. They established a small fishing village there, one that would thrive for another two centuries before it was ultimately absorbed into the ever-expanding Roman Republic. In 52 BC, it was renamed Lutetia by the victorious Romans but it wasn't until the 4th century AD that it would be given the name by which it's now known, itself a tribute to its original Celtic inhabitants. But it was on the Ile de la Cité that the modern city was born. The Romans noted the strategic importance of the island's location, and built a fort upon it, which also served as the governor's residence. This was the first of several fortifications that would arise on the island, meant to keep out hostile Celtic tribes that often threatened to breach its defenses. By the 6th century AD, the last vestiges of the Western Roman Empire had collapsed. In 508, this former Roman outpost fell into the hands of the Franks, a Germanic people who had slowly but surely been encroaching upon former Roman territory from their homelands outside of the empire's northern border, in what's now Germany. It was in this year that one of their kings, Clovis I, declared himself king over all the Franks, uniting them under a single banner for the first time and making Paris the capital of his new domain. His first order of business was to erect a palace on the Ile de la Cité within the old Roman fortification. Under his reign and those of successive Frankish rulers, new defensive walls will be built around the island to keep enemies and foreign invaders at bay. By the early 9th century, these walls had grown into a full-fledged medieval defensive system, with watchtowers and turrets, complete with a gate and drawbridge. It was here, in the year 845, that these defenses would be tested to their absolute limits for the first time, when they came face to face with some of the most fearsome warriors in history. 
To say the name Northmen or Vikings in the early 9th century was to strike terror and dread into the hearts of the people of Western Europe. Their reputation truly preceded them, as these hardy seafarers from the beautiful yet harsh lands of Scandinavia had led several raids via land and sea against such powers as the Four Kingdoms of England, the Celtic Confederations of Scotland and Ireland, and, by the early 800s, the shores of northern France. As their ancestral homelands weren't always conducive for growing crops, they looked to the fertile lands of their neighbors for sustenance and places in which they could thrive. At least, this was the Vikings' initial reason for carrying out the raids and pillaging for which they had become infamous. By the early 800s, their hunger for gold and glory caused them to look beyond the scope of their North Sea environs to places decidedly further away than those of which they had familiarized themselves. It wasn't long before mainland France became their next target, specifically the city of Paris, and they began drawing their plans against her. Early 9th century Paris was an entirely different beast from the humble place that the first Frankish king, Clovis, had known three centuries prior. For starters, the 9th century had begun with the reign of a man who's considered to be one of the greatest rulers of all time, as well as the father of modern Europe. To this day, he goes by many names. The Germans call him Karl de Grosse. In Latin, he was known as Carolus Magnus, but to later French and English speakers, he's known as Charlemagne, or Charlemagne, Charles the Great. In the 46 years that he reigned, he more than doubled the territory that his father, grandfather, and predecessors had, uniting much of Western Europe into an entity he dubbed the Holy Roman Empire. During this time, a sort of renaissance or revival in Western European arts, culture, sciences, and language brought his people out of the proverbial Dark Ages and into the light of the Roman Empire's former glory. With the help of scholars from throughout his domain, he created a standardized writing system that made reading easier. Several educational reforms ensured that those who had the means to do so had access to learning. It truly was a golden age for the Franks, as well as Western Europe. But by the time of Charlemagne's death in 814, the empire he had worked so hard to build seemed to hang precariously in the proverbial balance. Though his only surviving son, Louis I, assumed command of the throne, Charlemagne's successor would face a somewhat tumultuous rule. In 833, after 19 years as king of the Franks, Louis I was deposed by his own son, Lothaire. Though he would ultimately regain the throne and rule for seven more years, what ensued was a familial struggle for power between his three sons, Louis II, Charles the Bald, and the aforementioned Lothaire. With their father's passing in 840, three years of civil war broke out, eventually culminating in 843 with the split of the empire between the three of them, with Louis II controlling the eastern half, Lothaire the central, and Charles the Bald assuming leadership over the western portion, this last of whom made Paris his capital. For a couple years, all seemed to be going smoothly for Charles, as the battle between his brothers had subsided at last, but little did he know that his troubles were only just beginning. For years, at least since Louis I's reign, rumors have been circulating that the Northmen of Scandinavia would attempt to delve even further into France. Up until that point, they'd only led raids against rural communities in the northern part of the country. Such instances had become so frequent, with the Vikings proving to be quite a nuisance, that Charlemagne himself had commissioned a defensive wall to be built along the northern coast during his own reign. For a while, this kept the invaders at bay. But, by 820, they'd made their way to the mouth of the Seine, carrying out several minor attacks. By Charles the Bald's time, the Vikings had boldly advanced inland along the Seine, terrorizing the villages of Rouen and Jumiege. Needless to say, by 845, they'd become a viable threat, and it wasn't long before Charles assembled an army to meet the invading horde. 
The Viking force was led by a chieftain named Regin Herus, or Ragnar, with some sources going as far as to say that this was none other than the famous and semi-legendary figure of Norse history named Ragnar Lothbrok, with whom some of my listeners will no doubt be familiar from the epic history channel series Vikings. Whether this was indeed Ragnar Lothbrok remains unclear. What is known for certain is that he arrived in Paris that cold March day in 845 with a fleet of longships 120 strong, each of which was equipped with a total of 5,000 men and women armed and ready to fight. No sooner had they been spotted upriver did Charles dispatch his elite force to meet them. Shortly thereafter, the king received word that one entire division, comprising a whopping half of the army, had been defeated, forcing the remaining troops to retreat. 111 Frankish men had been captured by the Vikings, and hanged on an island in the Seine in equal parts to appease Odin, the chief Norse deity as well as the god of war, and incite terror into the hearts of the city's citizens. Reorganizing what was left of his army, Charles sent them to man the battlements along the Ile de la Cité's defensive walls. For the king, a Christian, the most important site in Paris was the Abbey of Saint-Denis, which stood at the heart of the city. He therefore ordered his men to protect it at all costs, so that it wouldn't be breached by the quote-unquote heathen Northmen, for not only was this a battle for survival against an invading force, but, for Christian Western Europe, it was one of morality, in which the pagan savages needed to be dealt a fatal blow. On Easter Sunday, March 29th, 845, the Vikings arrived at the city gates. What ensued was a fierce skirmish in which they used sophisticated wooden towers to tackle the problem of breaching the defensive walls. For the Franks, though equipped with crossbows, the latest in medieval European weaponry, they were completely ill-prepared for an attack of this scale. Not only were they greatly outnumbered, but enemy reinforcements kept coming in waves that broke and battered the city's defenses. Needless to say, it wasn't long before the city fell to the Northmen, at which time they raided it for supplies and plunder, to say nothing of the valuable gold and silver trinkets and artifacts used within the church. But the fighting came to an abrupt halt when a plague broke out in the Vikings' camp. Though it ultimately subsided, it had done a number on their troops. They simply couldn't attack any longer. Wanting to ensure that the Northmen wouldn't return to cause further harm or damage, Charles quickly reached an agreement with them, paying them a ransom of some 5,670 pounds, 2,570 kilograms of gold and silver. With these spoils weighing down their longships, the Vikings agreed to depart, though they still carried out a handful of raids at small sites on the journey home, including the Abbey of Saint-Bertin in what's now Saint-Omer, France. While the Frankish king was initially criticized for caving so easily and acquiescing to the heathen's demands, the truth of the matter was that he had more pressing issues with which to contend, namely the continued conflict with his brothers, backstabbing nobles, and several regional uprisings. Therefore, the ransom he paid he considered to be a smart move in that it would buy him more time to defend the city from future raids and or placate the enemy enough so that they wouldn't attack again. Perhaps Charles was a bit naive in his way of thinking, for, as to be expected, they did return, not once, but twice, first in the 860s, then in 885. Each time the Northmen were bought off with bribes, though the outcome of the year-long skirmish of 885 to 886 resulted in a decisive victory for the Franks in that they were able to successfully defend Paris. And while the Vikings never again attempted to sack the city, they did retain a presence in France, albeit in the far north of the country in a place that still bears proof of their presence, Normandy. It was this robust mixture of Norse and Frankish blood that, two centuries later, would invade England in what would become known as the Norman Conquest. Today, Paris is one of the undisputed cultural centers of Europe. But unlike other European cities, one needs to delve a bit to find glimpses into its storied past. 
This reveals itself in the occasional long-forgotten part of a Roman wall, or remnant of a medieval castle that appears when ground is broken for construction, or an extension is made on one of the many metro lines throughout the city and its environs. Indeed, if the earth could speak, particularly that which is found on the Ile de la Cité, it would undoubtedly share thrilling yet frightening tales of the terrifying time when Paris found itself besieged, not once, not twice, but on three separate instances by some of the most imposing warriors in all of world history. Surely on some nights, above the din of traffic, one can still hear the fearsome battle cries in Old Norse of the Vikings as they storm the battlements of the phantom walls that once protected Paris from the outside world. Thanks for listening, and I hope you found this episode as fascinating as I did in making it. Did you know about the Viking raids on Paris prior to listening today? Whether yes or no, let me know in the comments section on my latest Instagram post. Give me a follow at history underscore loves underscore company. Again, that's history underscore loves underscore company. And tell me more. Listening and sharing help me in big ways, but so is becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash history loves company and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget, which is ideal in these tough times. Tune in next week for another exciting and informative episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then. Thank you.